You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. Jesus is teaching uh, on the on the seashore as the people listen, and we're told that Jesus taught in parables. Now, we're, we're doing a study on parables with our kids and Jesus Kids Club, and uh, and this passage uh, gets at the, the very purpose of the parables, but the common definition of the parables, you probably have heard something said like this, that the parables are an earthly story uh, with a heavenly meaning. Uh, I think that's a, it's a kind of a, a good broad sense, but it doesn't really speak to the heart of why Jesus teaches the parables, which we'll come to uh, in a minute, a, a fuller definition definition of the parables, you could say, is that they are uh, a figurative narrative that's true to life uh, and designed to convey, using an analogy, some spiritual truths related to God's kingdom. The parables often relate to the nature, the arrival, and the growth of God's kingdom. And in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 4 is the parable chapter. Uh, There are other, uh, in the other Gospels, we see the parables in different places, but here in Mark 4, they are uh, all packed in here to chapter 4, and they all relate to the nature of the kingdom of God. And so that's what Jesus is doing here as he teaches about the kingdom of God. That's his subject. And he begins in verse 3, catching the attention of the audience. Listen. If you have kids uh, or you've taught our kids, you've probably said this a number of times as you've sought to teach them, right? Listen, uh, listen, uh, Jesus says. He gathers their attention and and says to them, consider the sower who went out to sow. And uh, this sower who goes out to sow scatters his seed on different soils. And there are four different soils uh, that Jesus mentions. He mentions the path, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, and the good soil. In the path, the seed falls, but it never germinates because the birds come and take it. The rocky soil, uh, the seed begins to germinate, but it eventually dies out because there's no depth. The thorny soil, the seed actually germinates and begins to grow, but it's choked out and ultimately doesn't produce fruit. And then there's the good soil. And in the good soil, the seed not only germinates and grows, but it begins to bear fruit. As Jesus speaks this parable, uh, he's indicating to us in verse 9 that there's something more uh, that he's doing here than meets the eye. Jesus isn't just giving uh, us a tip on how uh, to scatter seed and how to plant a garden, right? Uh, Jesus isn't just uh, giving us this agricultural lesson, but he says, let anyone who has ears to hear listen. He begins with listen. He ends with listen. Are we paying attention? Is the crowd paying attention? Hearing what he's teaching, do they understand what he's teaching? Um, And ultimately, we know as we get a glimpse in verse 10, we go from this telling of the parable of the sower uh, to an explanation of the purpose of the parables. In verse 10, uh, we see a scene shift as Jesus is alone with his disciples, the 12, and, and most likely some of the other disciples, and they begin to ask him about the parables. 
Um, and, and so it's clear that they understood that Jesus was trying to convey something, but they didn't fully understand it themselves. And if they didn't understand it, the disciples of the 12 who followed Jesus, you can imagine many in the crowd perhaps were uh, thinking through the implication of what Jesus was saying. And so here's why we get, uh, here's why I say it's, it's not just that the, the parables aren't really just like, uh, Jesus being a masterful teacher, though they do show that he is a masterful teacher. But a lot of times we look at the parables and we're like, see, Jesus taught so concretely. If you want to teach like Jesus, teach concretely and use illustrations and help people understand things. And, and I think if Jesus were teaching us how to teach, he probably would say all those things. And we have examples of how Jesus did that in his teaching. But the parables, he says, aren't merely to give illustration. They're not simply to aid people in understanding Jesus' points. Uh, in many ways, here, Jesus is going to say that the parables function more to render judgment against those who are hard-hearted um, than necessarily they do as an aid to explanation. Look at what he says uh, in verse 10. He says, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything comes in parables. So it's not that what Jesus did in the parables was not able to be understood, but that there is a difference between those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside. Those who believe and whom Jesus is revealing himself, they understand the parables, and those who are on the outside who are hard-hearted against Jesus don't perceive what Jesus is teaching. And it says that the purpose of this, in verse 12, is a quote from Isaiah, chapter 6, and it says that they, uh, this is so that they may indeed look and yet not perceive, and may indeed listen and yet not understand, otherwise they might turn back and be forgiven. Um, I've said this before, but commentators uh, of the Bible are prone to uh, sometimes exaggeration, and often whenever they're studying a hard passage, they say that it's the hardest passage in, uh, in, their, in the book or in the Bible. Uh, this is one of those passages that commentators do all kinds of wrestling with and wrangling with, because if you think about what Jesus is saying, he's saying, I teach in parables so that they don't understand. That's, that's, the, that's the implication of what he's saying. Some will say, well, no, he teaches this way, and as a result, people don't understand. Well, I, I think the so that means it's indicating purpose, and, uh, and it's important for us to understand the background of Isaiah 6. Um, <clears throat> breaker, breaker. Um, <clears throat> Sorry, I always want to say that. Um, <clears throat> it's important to understand the background of Isaiah 6, which is what he quotes. In Isaiah 6, what God is, uh, is, is saying to the people of Israel through the prophet Isaiah is because of their unfaithfulness, God is bringing about judgment. It's not because God and, and him bringing about judgment is not because he did not send messengers to call them to repentance. He sent messengers to call Israel to repentance, but they did not heed the message of repentance because their hearts were hardened towards God. And because their hearts were hardened towards God, they could not receive His message. And so when the message came, it functioned not as deliverance, which it would have if they would have had repentant hearts, but it functioned as judgment because they had hard hearts and would not receive his message. And Jesus is saying, I think, exposing the hard-heartedness uh, of some in the crowd, and particularly as we've looked at in the context, the religious leaders, saying that the message has come and that those who have hard hearts will not receive it. But to those who have open hearts, who have ears to hear, who are willing to repent, 
to them has been given, he says, the secret of the kingdom of God. And the secret of the kingdom of God isn't like this mysterious thing over here uh, that, that the select few get. The point of the secret is that it's previously unknown and that now Jesus has revealed it. And so it's come to us by divine revelation and understanding of the kingdom of God. And that the kingdom of God has come and is growing, and it does so, uh, we understand it through Jesus' revelation, through Jesus' teaching. And so here we have the, the information concerning the nature, the arrival, and the growth of the kingdom is revealed through Jesus to those who believe. But it, it's, it comes as a message of judgment to those who are hard-hearted. Charles Spurgeon and reflecting on this passage, says that the same sun which melts the wax hardens the clay. The same sun which melts the wax hardens the clay. The, the same message is declared, and some people hear it and repent, but other people hear it and are hardened in their sins. That's what's happening here. And, and what I want us to understand is, while Jesus' Jesus's word and his message can fall upon hard hearts and, 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 and seemingly, um, in, a, in a difficult way, even further harden the hearts of those who, uh, who are resistant to God, to those who are open to God, to those who are seeking him, God's word comes and it brings life, it brings truth, it brings revelation. And so what I, what I want you to, to take away from this is, yes, God's word comes as a message of judgment to those who are hard-hearted, but I want you to understand that God never turns away or hardens the hearts of those who seek him and are open to him. As we seek him and are open to him, he never turns us away. To those who come to him, Paul will say, he, he will never turn away uh, and, and, and they will never be ashamed of those who come to him in faith. And so sometimes as we look at uh, how God works and, and how the hearts of some people are resistant and opposed to God, it's hard to fathom and understand why that the same, the, the same message can be declared and some say, no way. And others say, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Uh, we, we have a, a mystery of how God works and yet we know that he's working and he's willing to work in the hearts of those who are open to him and who are seeking him. And so just as we've been looking at last week, the, the, the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees and the intrigue of the crowd, um, the, the difference that's so important is that one group had written Jesus off. The other group said, I just want to know what he's really about. I just want to hear what he has to say. I just want to see what he's done. And when there's openness to Jesus, Jesus will never turn us away as we seek him. Let he who has ears to hear, listen, Jesus says. This is the purpose of the parables. Twofold, revealing the kingdom of God to those who believe, hardening the hearts of those who don't. But then he gives the explanation specifically of the parable itself that he told in verses 1 through 9. After explaining the purpose of the parables, he says to them, here's, here's, how, uh, here's what this parable means. Do you not understand the parable, he says? How will you understand all of the parables? So he begins to explain it to give them insight into the parable. And as the explanation makes sense, what I want us to, to press into here for a few moments is to understand that the parable is told so that we understand how the kingdom of God grows. 
and, and even uh, in a sense that we would examine our own hearts in light of that. The purpose of this parable isn't for us to be soil inspectors of other people's hearts. It's not for us to determine how open or not open other people are to Jesus and to his message. The purpose is for us to first examine ourselves and then secondly to understand how the kingdom of God grows. And so Jesus explains it this way. He says the seed is the word of God. The sower here in our passage is Jesus who is proclaiming the kingdom of God. But later, by application, this will be the followers of Jesus who proclaim the message of the kingdom. And then finally, the soils are representative of the hearts of those who respond to the message of the gospel. So the word uh, that, that we have here is the word about Jesus, which Jesus himself proclaimed that in Jesus the kingdom of God arrived. In Jesus, God's promises are fulfilled. In Jesus, God's reign has come about. God has took on, took it on, taken on flesh and come to dwell amongst us. And this message about Jesus has the most paradoxical truth to it, that the, the king has come, but rather than conquering, as we would think a king would, the king has come to give his life for those whom he reigns and rules over. And he not only will give his life, but he will, raise, uh, he will take back up his life and rise from the dead. Here we see this message about Jesus is the word of God. And I love how elsewhere in the scriptures uh, this is uh, communicated. If you want to flip over to 1 Peter, <clears throat> chapter 2, verses 23 through 35. <clears throat> we see this reference to the Word of God. It's actually not chapter 2, it's chapter 1. Um, I was just testing you to see if you were paying attention. Um, <clears throat> it says in 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 23 through 25, it says, Since we have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable one, through the living and enduring Word of God, for all flesh is like grass, all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Salvation comes through the imperishable word of God, the message of the gospel. And then we see also in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, as Paul describes uh, the gospel, he uses this very same language to talk about the Word of God. He says in verse 8, he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended from David, according to my gospel, from which I am suffering to the point of being bound in chains, being bound like a criminal, he says. But he draws this contrast. Though I am bound like a criminal... The word of God is not bound. That is why I endure all things for the elect, so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here we see that the kingdom of God grows as a result of the word. So the truth that, that we see in the parable of the sowers is really this, that the word does the work. The word does the work. The Word is the gospel, the imperishable seed that leads to our salvation, the unbound Word of God, that though we have difficult situations, God's Word is never bound by our circumstances. God's Word is never bound by our inabilities and our inadequacies. The Word does the work. 
This is at the heart of the Reformation and Martin Luther as he reflected on his life how God used Martin Luther to, uh, to uh, his heart to take the, the word of God and translate it into the, to the language of the people. At that time, basically you could go to church and you could hear the Bible be read in Latin but not understand it at all. And, and Martin said, I want to take the Bible and make it understandable to the, uh, to the mill worker and to the shoe cobbler so that they can hear it and, and understand the word of God. And as he began to translate the word of God and read it for himself and read about justification by faith in Christ through, um, through Jesus' death and resurrection in Galatians and in Romans, it totally transformed human history, transformed the church, transformed uh, really so much that we see today as he reflected at the end of his life about how God worked through him. His conclusion was this, I did nothing, the Word did everything. I did nothing, the Word did everything. The Word of God does the work of God. That's the point. As we look at the parable of the sower, we're reminded that the kingdom grows not by our ingenuity, not by our creativity, not by our persuasion, not by our power, but by the Word of God. The Word of God is the power of God to accomplish the work of God. This is how God has determined His kingdom grows. It grows through His Word. But there's a second point that I think uh, is spoken here, because in many ways, while we call this the parable of the sower, it could just as equally be called the parable of the soils, right? Because we're, we're looking at the different ways in which people respond to this message. And not only do we see that the Word does the work, but I think we see that the Word does the work despite rejection. Do you notice three out of the four soils ultimately reflects a rejection of the message? At first, it just falls on the hard ground, and it says that Satan comes in and, and takes it away, and the word is never sown. The seed on the rocky ground, there's an initial reception of the message, maybe a, wow, this is amazing that this is true. And yet, there's not, when, when there's some opposition, particularly because of the word relating to Christ, there's kind of a, whoa, this is more costly than I thought, and a, a backing away, and it never, it never takes root. And then we see that at times others hear it and receive it, but then a Along the way, the, the thorns of life, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the stuff of life, the desires for stuff end up crowding out the message and leading, uh, leading the, the, uh, the ultimately the person who has responded to bear no fruit and to, and to not ultimately persist in belief. And then finally, we see that there is uh, the hearts of those on whom the gospel message comes who receive it and whom in receiving it are transformed by it and bear fruit. We have, we have a few different reasons that people reject the gospel here in this passage. We see that there's callousness, that there are some who are as hard-hearted as a well-worn path, that there's just no room, no willingness, no openness to hear the message. Then we see that others reject the message because of the cost of following Jesus. I hear what you're saying, but I'm not sure I'm willing to reorient my life to follow him. If Jesus can be an add-on, I may be interested, but if he requires me to, to orient my life around him, to say no to some things, and for him to uh, kind of step into my life, and for him to tell me what to do, who are, who are you to tell me what to do? other than my Creator and the one who gave His life for me. But who are you to tell me what to do? That's the, the heart of the, the person who considers the cost of following Jesus too great. 
And then perhaps I think the one that lingers most in my mind and most uh, in my heart as I think about people either in our church or in our city who maybe are open to the message, but it just has no room. The, the picture of the thorns is really a picture of uh, a people who are distracted and who are busy with other stuff. So much so that there's no room or time to consider the message and to allow the message to grow. The, the cares of this world. I mean, so many things that fall into this, right? Like, and, and a recognition that there are, there are plenty of things that we have to care about, right? Like, it's not like you can just float through the world without caring about anything but the Word of God, right? There's all kinds of stuff that we have to face. God doesn't, isn't opposed to our cares. In fact, he tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, cast your cares on the Lord because he cares for you. And yet the cares of the world, the preoccupation with the stuff of the world can, can crowd out our openness and receptivity to the message and the deceitfulness of wealth. I think it's striking the way he says that it's not just the, the accumulation of wealth, which certainly that can, can kind of dominate our times and our minds, but it speaks to this, this thought of, of thinking we're pursuing one thing and being deceived in the process, thinking we're getting security, thinking we're getting comfort, thinking we're getting pleasure, but instead we're actually being deceived and enslaved to our wealth or to the desire of wealth. And then we have, it says, if you thought you were in the clear, uh, not only the deceitfulness of wealth, but desires for other things. I mean, what could not fall into the category? Maybe it's desire for inherently sinful things, or maybe it's in inordinate desires for good things that we place above God. Preoccupation with health, education, career, family, relationship. All of these things can be good in and of themselves, but then they preoccupy our hearts and our minds so much so that we're not willing to be responsive to the Word of God. And I think what Jesus is saying here is we understand the kingdom and how it grows is you should expect rejection. And people are going to reject the message for different reasons. And here's what happens as we think about people who reject the gospel. We tend to be discouraged by rejection. Right? It can, it can be discouraging. Maybe, maybe just personally, you know people in your life who are currently rejecting the message of the gospel. It's discouraging. It weighs on our hearts. But I think what we should do in light of what we see here is we should be reminded to be patient and prayerful in the face of rejection. Because until a person has no breath, there is no rejection that's final. There are those whose hearts are hardened and there are those whose minds and hearts are preoccupied and have no room to consider the gospel, whom God will open their eyes and minds through the gospel. And I've been reminded that we often uh, will do spiritual interest surveys on, on campus uh, at the U of M and uh, here coming up at, at Eastern. And uh, even this past week we were out, it was like 30 degrees and started snowing. And I'm amazed that people still stop and talk. Um, and <clears throat> we are having some conversations, three different conversations, two, uh, two of the people, one uh, considered himself an agnostic, one considered himself an atheist. And as I asked them about Jesus, they are so certain of not following Jesus, but, 
when I ask them about what they know about Jesus, they don't actually fully know or understand the true message of Jesus. And to each of them, I said, I want to encourage you not to reject someone that you don't know. How often as we see people reject the gospel, is there a sense of rejecting something in their minds that if we heard it, we would reject it too? If that was the understanding that we had of Jesus, we would reject it too. But we thankfully have God's word to us where he's revealed himself to us. And so rather than being dismayed and discouraged, we ought to be patient and prayerful. And my simple invitation to, to both of those guys is, as we wrapped up our time, which was short, was to say, hey, do this for me. Just read. Read the Gospel of John. Read the Gospel of Mark. Don't reject the one that you don't know. Don't turn away from the one who came and laid down his life for you so that you might be freed from your sin and have eternal life. That may sound like a fairy tale to you, but consider Jesus. Consider Jesus and what he's done for you. And here's the truth, that though there are many who will reject the message, there are also many who will receive it. And they'll receive it, and their lives will be changed by it. That's how the kingdom of God grows. It grows despite rejection, and it grows as the word is shared. The word does the work as it is shared. Here we see Jesus being the one to share the word. Later we will see that Jesus sends his disciples and sends us to be the ones who bear witness to him and to, and to sow the word of the gospel. And I think it's also interesting to consider that while three out of four of the seeds ultimately reject the message, do you notice that at least three out of the four are open to the message? Three out of the four are at least open initially to the message. Only one says that it falls on the ground and has no room, no place to be heard. And I think that's true in my experience that though there are many who ultimately do not receive Christ, there are many who are open to discuss Christ. And so while rejection should be expected, I don't want us to miss out on the fact that there are also people who are willing to talk. There are people who are willing to consider and explore. And I think that the encouragement that all of us need, and that I need to remind myself of frequently, is don't determine for others if they're willing to listen to the gospel. Don't make that call for other people. You can't control their hearts, but you can control your tongue. We do have the opportunity to share and not shrink back from sharing and trust that God will be at work when the word is shared. You should consider how you came to believe. Every one of us came to believe the gospel, perhaps through different circumstances, but ultimately because the gospel was shared, somehow by someone. Maybe you heard the gospel through a roommate, college, classmate, high school. Maybe you heard the gospel because mom or dad shared it with you. Maybe you heard the gospel because a coworker invited you to a Bible study. Maybe, maybe you heard the gospel because somebody brought you to church and you heard a sermon and the gospel was shared and, and you trusted in Christ. I know in our church there's someone who's come to faith in Christ through hearing a sermon preached on YouTube, posted on Facebook. Maybe you heard the gospel in response to reading the Bible for yourself, or maybe you heard the gospel over a conversation with a friend. All of us come to faith in Christ because somebody is willing to share the word. 
somewhere, somehow, either in response to the word that's shared in the scriptures, in response to a conversation with someone, in response to something that's been posted online. In every way, the gospel, uh, the word of God works as it is shared. And here we can take heart that we don't always understand how, we don't always understand why some reject it, but we know that when the gospel is shared, God works. People respond. And when they respond, their lives are changed by the gospel. And ultimately know that the word works when it's received. The difference between the first three seeds and the, uh, the first three soils and the final soil is that the word is, is received and allowed to grow and produce fruit in the final soil. It says that that final soil <clears throat> is the seed sown on good ground. They hear the word, they welcome it, and it produces fruit 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. But I, I think as an encouragement to us, as we think about how the word works when it's received earlier, I said the purpose of this parable is driven at helping us to examine ourselves, and then secondly, helping us to understand how God grows the kingdom. Well, as, as I ask you to examine yourself, when we think about how the word is received, I want you to look first at yourself. And just kind of using the, the third soil as an example, I, I want to exhort us to watch our heart. I described earlier what uh, this third soil is talking about. The worries of the age, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desires for other things. As you hear those things, which of those sticks out in your mind? What captures your heart? What do you spend your, your time thinking about? What do you look at when you wake up in the morning? What preoccupies your mind on the drive or in between uh, things at work? Basically, what are we distracted with? What do we allow the space in our hearts and minds uh, that crowds out hearing God's Word, responding to God's Word, growing in God's Word? If it's true that God does His Word through His Word and He desires to use us as we share it, a question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we positioned in such a way to be ready and available for God to use us? Or are we preoccupied and distracted with the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for stuff? It's so easy. I say it because I see it in my own heart. I see it in the, in the ability to be preoccupied with, with stuff all around me. How much, how much does God's Word have our attention and how much does the other stuff of this life have our attention? And the, and the, the question underneath it is, what has the priority, right? There's all kinds of things that we have to do. But in the midst of the stuff that we have to do and even get to do, what has the priority of our hearts? What's the driving force of our, of our heart and of our, of our focus? We have to watch our hearts lest we be too busy to receive the Word and allow it to do its work in our lives. 
But then I think as I look at verse 20, it's to, to persist in the word is the encouragement we need to hear. I, I don't know if any of you have planted a garden. I know that kind of became popular in COVID and, um, and we thought about planting a garden, um, but we ultimately ended up allowing somebody else to plant a garden in our backyard and they tended it, you know. But one of the things I noticed as I watched somebody else plant a garden in my yard uh, is that it takes time for stuff to grow. Right? You don't just put the seed in the ground and then go out the next day and expect to find fruit. But that's kind of how I would like it, right? Like if you put the stuff in the microwave and push the 30-second button on the other end, it's ready and there for you to enjoy. But the stuff that you put in the ground that grows, that's good for you, that's healthy, that produces fruit in you, it takes time. It's got to persist through the sun coming down on it and the water being poured in on it. It's got to persist through the rabbits trying to jump over and, and take the stuff and the squirrels coming in and digging up stuff. you got to maybe put some fences up to protect it. And sometimes those tomato plants don't like to grow on their own, so you got to put that little round thing around it so that it grows up straight and produces fruit. We have to persist in the Word to experience the fruit that comes from it. It's in our own life, our own time with the Lord, our willingness to study God's Word, whether it's studying God's Word on our own, studying God's Word with others, a willingness to, to read God's Word with others, even an openness to, to say to someone, hey, let's read the Bible together. And you may say to yourself, Michael, are you nuts? I have no idea how to teach the Bible. Well, I didn't ask you to teach the Bible to anyone. I just asked you to read the Bible. Let the Word do the work. Read it and see what happens. Trust God as we open His Word to watch it work in our lives. Are we persisting in the Word? Or are we, are we getting distracted and giving up? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14 says it this way, I thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a word from men, but as that which it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. You accepted the Word not as a word from men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. What an encouragement for us. God grows His kingdom through His Word. So just as we began with two questions, I end with these two questions. Is the Word bearing fruit in your life? And listen, as a believer, like this is a continual question we ask. It's not like there's this arrival point. Right? Like we're, we're continually allowing the, the word to, to, to be planted, to grow, and to, to bear fruit. It's this continual process. But are you seeing fruit right now in your life? Or are you like the shriveled up tomato in my backyard? We, we have to be responsive and receptive to the word willing to allow the Word to do its work in our lives, responding in repentance, responding in faith, continually coming to God, asking Him to work in us and to bear fruit in our lives. If we want God to work through us, we can't expect Him to work through us what He has not yet worked in us. That's the need for the Word of God to work in us. But then secondly, are you sowing the Word in the lives of others? The kingdom grows as the Word is sown. Jesus is the first sower. He calls us to continue the sowing. So is the Word producing fruit in us? And is the Word producing fruit through us? Are we sowing the Word in the lives of others? That's what Jesus is inviting us to in Mark chapter 4, to be a part of His kingdom-growing work. We don't grow the kingdom. 
God grows the kingdom, and yet he invites us to be a part of it. Let's pray.